Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the pleasure of bringing on Margaret Pennard. And we already were introduced to Margaret through a video that I have put out that you guys have seen about the YOLA. I'm only going to abbreviate the YOLA Festival. Um, (laughs) I know I actually said it halfway, but we also want to talk to Margaret because she's an author. So Margaret, say hi to everybody on the podcast, our listeners. Hello. We are so happy to have you here, Margaret. Now, those that have watched the video might know just a little bit about details about you. We pick up listeners from all over the place that aren't necessarily going onto my website. So why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself, Margaret. First, tell us where you live, what state, what location in the Pacific Northwest. And then I know you no longer have a day job, but what did you do prior to writing full-time? So let's start there. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me, Vicki. I am located in Portland, Oregon. Very happy to be here. Been here for eight years, but previously I was in... Washington, D.C., and before that, I was a little international. I was doing international relations studies, and so I was in Turkey and Albania and Ireland, and that was a whole other life, as we say. Nonprofit conflict negotiation was the the field, so that's what I ended up doing for a few years in D.C., but before that, I was mainly a California girl, so probably like Many people in the Northwest, you're either one of them or you're grumbling about them. We're neighbors and I think we get along pretty well. Yeah, I I try not to complain too much about (laughs) the transplants, but I'm really honestly, I am a native because I've been here since I was 18 months old. So I claim to be native, but we're from Arizona, my family. So I don't know if there's really a whole, there's a few people that are born residents, but not many anymore, not many authors. So I love your background. So you've spent time in DC. I love DC, but I, I would never want to stay there. We have lots and lots of friends there. Love you out there, DC, but never want to stay. Do you have yeah. to tell people I am in oh, Washington yeah. state, not Washington, DC? You have to make the distinction. <laughs> yeah. I saw a really funny video where someone was taking an audio that was like the uh, arcade <laughs> game. And they started with I live in Washington and they went through all these different things of not this and the state because it's, yes, not the assumption, but I'm sure it grates on their nerves, but yeah. 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 We get it a lot. I I just now just say it all the time. And then the favorite thing that I get is when people find out I'm in Washington, the next thing is, oh, you're in Seattle. I'm about three and a half hours South of Seattle and that's on good traffic days. (laughs) All righty. So you're full-time author now And does your background lend to the genre you're writing in? So tell us about the genre you write in. I think it does. (laughs) Let's see. So I'm a historical fiction author. And it's the one that I loved reading the most. So it's the one I dove into when I started writing. The background that I have in terms of studies is politics. And history and politics are the same. It's whether you're judging something as a truth or a political belief that you get into (laughs) strange territory. But 
Yeah, historical fiction is really about understanding how people's beliefs changed over time, how they reacted to technology changing. I feel like we're in a time where so much of that is just sped up, but then you realize there were previous eras where people must have felt the same. Like it, it keeps getting compacted and com- compacted. Yes, historical fiction is what I dove into. I love it. So as we had talked before, I'm a historical fiction author as well, not published yet. Podcast got in the way. So I started with the idea. I was going to do some writing, met authors, asked them how they got published, found out all this information. I'm like, oh, this would be a great podcast. And so podcast land started (laughs) and my writing has slowed down. But I love to read historical fiction as well. Who's your favorite author out of all historical fiction? There's a lot out there. There are some like headliners that I normally tell people like Dana Gabaldon mm-hmm. and yeah. Susanna Kearsley. I love, but there's Declan Winspear with her Maisie Dobbs series, like serious favorite. I wish there were more to gobble up. I'm, I'm on number 18. So I'm just waiting yeah, for yeah. her to do the next one, but we've got years. So those are like my top. Diane's one of my all-time favorites. Way before the Outlander series ever came out, I read her books. And it's so funny because I follow her on Facebook and I was at one point, one of her, I got the badge for being one of her contributor people that harass her the most. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then she actually comments. (laughs) Yeah, and at the same time because she famously sends out all her tweets and comments at like, Three in the morning. We so. must be up around the same time because I'm just like, oh, another one from Diane. So then I always comment back and then she comments back. We had a discussion about when characters die off because I was just killing off one of my main characters and she posted, she asked really good questions in her Facebook, just her regular personal Facebook. She asked good questions. But the thing that I love about her and the thing that I love about most historical um, fiction authors is that they're super great in the research aspect or they should be great in it. And since I'm a librarian, I can't help myself to love anything that dives into super research. (laughs) I heard someone on YouTube recently was saying, it's a good historical fiction book if it makes you want to check whether it's real or not. If it's so believable that you think it could be true, but you're not sure. So you you do your own research to figure it out. And that's, I thought that was a pretty good standard. Yeah. That is such a great standard. I love it. And that's a standard for us to live for as historical authors. Or I think any author, I I think you and I had this discussion with Elizabeth who we're going to bring on later on the podcast. You also don't worry, Elizabeth will come in too. She'll have her own interview. But we were talking a lot how every genre needs to have some sort of research, some really good research skills, because we know when there's not good research. It's, it can be embarrassing, but I could talk about that all day, but (laughs) yeah, no, it is important. Sometimes it's what you want. It's not the heavy engagement with like very vivid detail. Sometimes you want the formula so that you can have the emotional payoff. If you're reading paranormal romance, for example, that's something that strikes me as not having the most research <laughs> needs because you're making up the world, but you're also like have the formula of the, the romance. So it's, yeah. you know, yeah. 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 I, yeah, I'm not going to, yeah. I'm going to ask another question. <laughs> Because I'm not going to say something that's going to make any of my listeners unhappy. (laughs) So, okay. okay. I read those. I've dabbled. I I was curious. Okay, great. Sounds good. Have you read Gail Carriger? No. Okay. I would recommend you to try her because she's not the normal paranormal romance, but there are vampires and werewolves and it's in the 19th century sort of steampunk 
Okay, uh, I'll definitely read that. I'll take it from you as a historical author recommendation that it might be something I'll be interested in. Because that's the part right. that I really struggle with most of it is that it doesn't have a lot of grounding in in. I want it to be almost believable enough yeah. that I'm wondering if it's really a vampire or not. This is this one is very funny, especially at the beginning of the series. I really liked how she brought the humor and the wit and the Victorian morals to this completely different. So that's why that's the aspect of it that I liked. Yeah, that's so cool. And Victorian era is like my second love. <laughs> I have specific oh, okay. areas that I love. Um, Elizabeth I around Shakespearean okay. times. So that's what my books are currently set in my yeah. series that I'm working on. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah. And I am reading Hammett. Hammett, I never say it right, oh. but yeah. yeah. Maggie that just, O'Farrell. Mm-hmm, yeah, it just came out. And as of when we were recording this, it came out a couple months ago. And it was on my watch list because it was in the same time period of what I was writing. And she's taken a whole spin on Shakespearean life that a lot of us have wondered about. It's very good. So I recommend that it one. It's really uh, good. Yeah. And I'm really taking my time with it because I'm like digesting every bits and pieces of it. So so what are you currently reading? What's on your what's on your book stand next to your bed? Or what three books are you reading? <laughs> exactly. I have just started doing videos for YouTube and having a channel for the past couple months and getting used to planning what I read. So normally I just have a stack, as you say, of six or seven books next to my bedside. But now there's like pressure. It's like homework. I'm assigning myself books for the month. So I have seven books for October and I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them, but the ones I'm working on right now are Hood Feminism, so nonfiction, and North and South Elizabeth Gaskell, which for some reason I have not read, even though I'm a huge fan of Bronte. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And it's the first time. So it's like the best as an adult reading a classic for the first time and definitely love the miniseries and... I'm gulping that down, trying to slow down to get the, the digest all the details as well. I, I love mini series and I hate mini series because I'm I don't like to wait for another book and then I don't like when it's all over and done with. I'm like, no, we need more, but I don't want to wait for another. It's it's a dilemma. <laughs> oh, and speaking of homework, you should see my reading list for podcast recordings. Uh, um, yeah my email inbox of all the courses I have assigned myself up to to <laughs> participate in. I'm like, oh, it's yeah. ridiculous. Maybe that's why I never have time to write. Hmm. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. You must have a list of lots of different media to consume to get further on your, your journey in your own niche. So what I have like just in July decided to do was make YouTube that niche for myself. So I don't really listen to podcasts. I don't watch TV. I don't follow series like on, on Netflix or anything. And so that leaves a lot of time, a lot of time to watch videos and talk to other creators and try to do collaborations. So for your sort of array of all the media, where do you have your TBR list? Is it all podcasts or... Mm-mm. No. No. So how I have now in the last two years, how I operate is I will listen to one audiobook a month. So then I'm getting another reading and it's on, and it's not necessarily a technical book or a how-to book. So I'll try to choose one audiobook a month. I'll read at least one fiction book a month usually. And I'm starting to change. So you podcast listeners, I'm going to be changing my format and slowing down the podcast production a little bit starting in 2021. And I'm actually going to read the books before the authors come on. So that's going to slow it down. 
so we can have a real super tight conversation about the book itself, which, and it's also about me slowing down. So I usually, let me back up. So one audiobook, one fiction book, at least one technical book. I try to do one online course a month. Sometimes it goes a little longer than that. I listen to probably three or four podcasts regularly. And they're series podcasts about technical stuff, writing, either writing or podcasting. And then I'll switch that weekly. Mm-hmm. There are some of them are weekly and I'll switch that up. I'll read three or four blogs a week and not always are the same blogs because I'm constantly finding resources also to help authors. And so I'm always doing that. And then I'm a part of a couple of Facebook groups. I'm not actually as um, involved in Facebook as I would like to be. It hasn't been my medium of choice, honestly. <laughs> Mine's Instagram. And for some reason, I just love the fact that I can pop a picture up engage a little bit. But Facebook does have a huge community of podcasters and writers. And so I try to engage a little bit there, but not terribly a lot. So that's how it operates for me. But I am a TV-holic. I'm a TV series addict. And so for me to wind down where I'm not thinking about all of this stuff, because as you can see, my brain is going all the time. Plus, I'm working working full-time with my students for work while I have all this stuff going on. So my husband and I, we love football. So we watch football uh, during football season. I'm a Seahawk fan. Woohoo! Woo. <laughs> and, but then I also, I will, my husband goes to bed very early. So I'll start one or two Netflix series. That's how I relax or I'll shut that off for a while and I'll do some readings. So I would prefer to have a a life where and there's, I dream about the idea of never being plugged in and not having anything audio or I hear people talk about how they go off of social media and I'm like, or go off of all together technology for a while. And I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. I'm wired towards yeah. technology yeah. too much. Yeah. So there's me. You asked a question. Nobody actually is ever asked. <laughs> I know as people behind the scenes who are both creators of fiction or books, I have to create some other content to equate them with this material. You have to choose because there's no way you can do it all. So I'm always interested in hearing what other people are, you know, focusing, get their heads down. So now with 2021 coming up, I'm going to redefine quite a bit of what I'm doing. So I'm going to try to focus just on the writing, slow down on the Authors of the Pacific Northwest podcast, and really start ramping up my own YouTube channel around researching for authors. And I already have online courses developed that I want to launch and everything like that. And I'm going to try. This is the big step for me. I want to get on the other side of the microphone and get on some writing podcasts and talk about researching for authors and be on the other side. So that's the whole new thing for me. I'm hoping to wind down some of the other stuff and find that that groove where I can just groove with maybe the YouTube channel and the online course and helping authors research. I have a YouTube channel and I can interview. Yeah. Yes, I know you do. So there's my pitch. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I roll. I'll definitely let you know. So you have all the information. I'm working on all that press kit stuff now and everything. That'll be a blast. So is your YouTube channel about writing and the writing process and the craft? Here's what I discovered after several months of research. There's booktube and there's author tube and there's even creator tube there's some <laughs> fissures in the community 
basically booktube is for readers to put their stuff on and there's the gamut of hobbyists to professionals making their living by this and authortube is mostly indie published but some traditionally published people trying to connect with their audience on youtube as well so when i discovered that i was like i think i'm going to be more engaging if i'm talking to people about books and i do plenty of readings i'm aiming to do 3 quarter books and 1 quarter author tube the creator tube was like a split off because author tube was having drama if you can believe oh it. yes people I, like, heard I don't about want to it. be associated with that so like yeah. actually the book tube had it too for a while so I was doing yeah. some research into it and I was like wait a minute this is all kind of crazy bill so yeah I get it I've been putting my toe in I haven't jumped in yet <laughs> it's crazy for people who choose that I feel like because I hear plenty of people complaining about book Twitter as well being just a horrendous place. And I go on Twitter and I'm always seeing people with hashtag writers community, hashtag writers lift, trying to get followers up, trying to have their feeds open for people's books to, uh, to promote. And I feel like I've met great people on Twitter. I know that people have different experiences, but I want to say that there's also great people on Twitter, partly what you reflect back and partly what you block and don't feed into. I agree hundred yeah. percent. Really early on. I love to tell a story early on at the podcast. I had my very first interview with a local author here in, in my community. Her and I are around the same age. We worked together at the community college and she actually left to be an author. And I'm like, Oh, I need to know all about what you're doing. This is so cool. And so I was picking her brain off camera because I had one Twitter follower with my mother. Didn't even know my mother had a Twitter. Why does mom oh. have it? This is funny. And so I'm like, how do I get Twitter followers? And so she was telling me how she did it with challenges and the hashtags and stuff. The funniest advice I had ever been given that she told me, and this is going to be a little raunchy, everyone. So if you're used to my, she's like, just make sure on social media where your condom. <laughs> I've never have forgotten that <laughs> because so it's basically true. have your filter ready. This is true. It just depends on. 100% what you put out there, who you accept into your realm, into your bubbles, what I call it. And right, um, right. your silo, really. Yeah. I was telling my oldest daughter, because both our old our daughters are older out of the house. They're the internet generation and they don't even have Instagram hardly anymore. They moved on to whatever else is next. I was telling her how I filter and I'll go on to my Instagram and I'll remove people, particularly of male persuasion that are just there. And she's like, I don't know how you have time Hmm. to do that. And I go, how do I not do that? Because I want to make sure that people, especially authors and particularly female authors that join me on Instagram, I don't want them to get plagued by these men that, you know, are picking authors and then they start, you know, friending everybody. So I, I take a couple of hours just from the zip through and just quickly scan and dump (laughs) as fast as possible. So boy, we have deviated. (laughs) Uh, YouTube channel, what's on there? So I recently did a a video about what's my content going to be? What's my flavor or personality on YouTube going to be? What persona am I going to share there? And basically, I had a list of types of posts that I was going to put up. And my videos are going to be current reads, want to reads, not so much on reviews, but more about discussions with other people, because I think that gives the best of the review because you tease out your thoughts and bring them up to a a new level. I love costume shenanigans. So if there's any sort of like cosplay element that can be brought into play, that would be fun. I did a dramatic reading. Today's video was a dramatic reading. So once a month I'm doing, I read Bronte poetry this morning. So that was fun. 
readathons and the author tube. So 10 videos a month, two of them being author ish. And that's, I'm just at the first month. So they're the very rudimentary, like here's my current work in progress. And here's, I think I'm going to talk about my current writing habits versus previous writing habits because they're like night and day, not the essential, but the where, when, how, who kind of thing. So thought that was interesting. We shall see what the world thinks. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm so energized that you're telling me all this because I really do want to switch almost everything to video. And as my podcast listeners know, I don't put a lot of video out. I do record almost all my um, interviews with video, but I don't put them out very often, hardly ever. And I think video is so much more powerful. And so that's where my shift will be on in 2021. Matter of fact, I just had one of the most amazing things happen to me. This never happens to me, but my listeners know we're building me an office. My husband been super dedicated to me having a creative workspace. So this office is going to be gorgeous. And I kept saying, oh my gosh, this is going to have four perfect spots for video recording and I need a new camera. So my husband's like, whenever I say that, he's like, okay, we'll put it in the budget and see how much, this is how the podcast got started. I need a new computer and I need a new mic. (laughs) And he's just so great. So he's, so I started doing some research and asked my YouTube buddies, what camera should I get? And I'm like, oh man, these are expensive. So I had my budget laid out the total amount. And then I went on vacation for my day job, forgetting that we were having end of performance reviews. So I get back from vacation. My manager's like, we got to do your end of performance review. And he tells me all blah, blah. And he's like, and by the way, you're getting a one-time, you know, performance bonus. The person on the (laughs) getting it. And I'm like, really? how much is it? And he like tells me, I'm like literally on Amazon Prime this morning buying my cameras and and stuff because it's the exact amount as that budget. And I'm like, how perfect is that? So I messaged my husband, I'm buying my camera and my lights because my performance review bonus came. What performance review? (laughs) I don't know. I don't care. I'm spending the money now. (laughs) So it's just one of those moments where I was like, okay, I'm on the right path. And so, so I'm super excited. So what we have to do is when I I get mine up and running and everything, um, we'll have to do some share shows together. That'd be a blast. And I already have one in mind since I know you and Elizabeth love costumes and so do I. I I have to do (laughs) (laughs) some sort of costumey thing. I'll come on dressed on camera. (laughs) We'll have to pick a holiday, like some obscure holiday and dress up. We did a pop-up book club for a mighty blaze the other night last night yes last night oh my god (laughs) this seems like forever already and it was the topic was if you could invite any author living or dead to a dinner party who would it be what would you ask them and what would you eat and so I because it's 2020 now and I've been um, highlighting the year of the women's vote I thought of Edith Wharton because she was writing 1920 so I dressed up with my suffragette shirt waist and the the hat from the early 20th century and and made them guess and they didn't no but someone else had Edith Wharton so I was like they beat me to the French (laughs) you should have quickly changed your character real fast (laughs) I know I wasn't thinking fast enough I, I love her though. So yeah. I was secure in my choice. That's good. That's it. I love it. So much fun stuff. So I knew our interview was going to be a blast and I'm just so looking forward to our future doing some stuff, um, collaborative stuff together. Cause I think we're just, it's just too much fun. Let's get back to your writing process. Let's writing start with process. your writing, writing process. So are you a typical, I don't even like to label them pantser, plotter or are you a mix you're a pantser okay me too I've tried (laughs) to reform so when I started I was writing in 
dibs and dabs around a full-time job. When I uh, left that job and came here, I published the book. And so books two, three, four, and five have been with part-time jobs. And so they have also been normally first drafted during NaNoWriMo. Oh, yes. Mine was too. My very first. Yes. I find that tremendously motivating and not that I interact with the people in the nano forums that much. It's just, it's the time. It's the time of the year for this. And somehow the energy flows. So I have an intense period of getting up and writing for an hour and 10 minutes and getting my 1700 words and like thinking about it and processing it all through that month. But if I had to do that all year, I would explode. Like I, I couldn't keep it up. So that's my first draft process. And then the uh, first edit Let's see. The first edit is for, does this make sense? What did I leave out? What names got switched? This kind of like comprehension and typos. And then after that, it starts to be more developmental and how does the structure sound and how is the pasting and all that. And that is much more excruciatingly slow because I hate editing other people's, but my own stuff, it's like... I had no idea how much I hate it, but I will avoid it. Like maybe that's why the podcast and everything else is so paramount because I'm in the middle of editing the first draft. Do you have a reward system? Because that's what saves me. Oh yeah, lots of rewards. (laughs) Okay. And I I even have deadlines. Here's what's hilarious is I have a writer's group that I send my... Uh, chapters are up to two chapters every two weeks we meet and we were meeting face to face and then I moved us all to zoom there are very prolific amazing authors fantastic my writing um, craft has just skyrocketed the story has become beautiful but boy I tell you when it comes to that deadline time I and I they know I'm editing and I'm just like pulling teeth to get something out to them. I'm like, I'd rather, let me just work hard. Let me just send you book two. I'll just send you book two stuff. And they're like, no, we got to finish book one. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. When I joined a writing group for a couple years, three, two and a half, three years, and it was hard to figure out what the rhythm should be. So I think I came in at the beginning with a whole draft that I could feed in, because we do a few chapters at a time, for my slots and then revise that and keep going in the same draft. But it was a weird, if I change this now, I have to go back to the next thing I was going to send and it gets confusing. But then after that, when that book was out and I was working on the next one, it was, I can't write to deadline. Like the first draft process is that's not, that's weird. So that's why Nana was so much better for me than trying to write for the writing group. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to do NaNoWriMo again for a while because I have all, I have a book I have one whole manuscript done. I'm working in edits. Book two is um, almost done. Book three is outlined. And so I, but I love NaNoWriMo, but I didn't do any of the participation either. We actually did a live weekly meeting here in my area, our public library, and when it was open. And we would all, we'd all get together and we'd have just write-ins and we weren't like working with each other. And then we just gave each other right. space somewhere right. else to do it. And it was a blast. We had a great time. Yeah. But, but yeah, NaNoWriMo for me was exhausting and exhilarating and I would love to, I would love to write like that every every year like constantly oh. be putting out that much volume of writing. I dream about that, but <laughs> I yeah, I have two it. two novel manuscripts in the drawer that I look at. And so sometimes it turns into something if you keep that oomph after that month, but sometimes yeah. it, you just peter out. Yeah. For me, the the length of 50,000 words in a month is not a full book. And so it's you have to keep that energy on your own into December yeah. for as long as it takes to get the ending. And the endings are like my weakness. I cannot 
maybe it's because I don't want to finish that writing process or maybe it's just because all the things are being juggled and I can't focus on the end, but the outline never has the right ending by the time I'm there. And oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I almost always start with the ending of the story. It always that's is the ending. For, and that's just how it comes to me. I don't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write about this person. This person. And a storyline will come to me in the ending. And then I'll be like, wow, that's pretty cool. Now I got to backtrack to how we got there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and uh, this is how it is with me. <laughs> I'm sure one day that will be how it comes to me, but not yet. Yeah, but we're all different. So yeah. Yeah. You have chosen to self-publish, I believe, all of your work. Talk us through that decision, because I know that it's not always a concrete decision. We have a lot of fluidity in the publishing industry now. Currently, how you got started with um, self-publishing, and are you going to stay there forever? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The ongoing question. So when I was in D.C. at an office job, I started writing because that wasn't fulfilling my dreams of what I was going to do with my life. And I was also investigating like doing cooking classes that were based on travel destinations because I love to travel. I love food. So there were all these things that were like, which direction am I going to take? So I experimented in this direction and that direction. And I came to Portland with four classes in the can of like things that I could do. But then I was like, I'm not going to put a restaurant kitchen in my one, in my studio apartment. I didn't think this through. So (laughs) (laughs) I basically like jettisoned that and went with uh, publishing. And my thinking was that I'm leaving a job. I'm leaving a toxic relationship. I'm starting over with knowing almost no one. I don't need rejection right now. So sending work out and being rejected for a year, which is like maybe an average, I don't know, is not my idea of a fun time right now. (laughs) So for my emotional health, that was more of my decision. I felt growing up when I, when I was like 10, 11, 12, I always wanted to be an actress. And when I was in high school and college, I got to the reality of auditions and that rejection. And I was like, oh, no, thanks. Sorry. I'll, I'll come back later, maybe. So it seemed like another level of that where it was something that I would really love to do, but I didn't want to work with gatekeepers. I didn't want to feel that sort of emotional roller coaster of someone else holding the keys to my happiness. Took some notes on this question, and I, I saw that there were some trade offs that I thought about, at least at this point. So after seven years of doing it, I'm thinking, what were the trade offs that I'm still checking in on and, and seeing if it's on one side, on the self publishing side? And it is. I've periodically said, okay, at three books, I'll do this. At five books, I'll do this. Sort of a a check-in to see if I'm ready to try sending it, if I'm confident enough, if I have enough faith in myself. And it's always, but it's not like I'm super successful right now, but it feels like the the things that are positive about this, I don't want to give up now that Mm -hmm. I'm in it. So maybe Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of inertia. One of the trade-offs is being yourself, feeling like you are being authentic and not filtered with no audience versus trying to obtain validation and maybe marketing yourself in a certain way where you would at least have a small guaranteed audience. So that was one where I was like, I feel like mental health, I'm on the side of feeling authentic and not filtering myself. Obviously, but not not to that level. You're not handled. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or told that this would really make it pop or something, like the the industry jargon. The other one was between creating and sharing and creating and waiting. So at that moment, when I started, I looked at the, you know, create space, Amazon's publishing arm, which is no longer in existence. 
and saw what was needed to do. And I thought I can put it on and it'll be out there or I can wait and send it out and just sit here and nothing. <laughs> so, so that appealed to me is having the, the sh- power to share quickly. And the last one, that going back to the faith in oneself. So this is the more recent one, actually, having faith to commit fully to this writing life. When I first came to Portland, I was with part-time jobs. I've had three part-time jobs while I'm trying to write at the same time. And it was this weird juggling, I'm trying to do this instead of this because this isn't valid. Talked a little bit about this in the Yolo Vocal Flow video, but this is one of the things I think that comes up in that decision-making process is, are you holding off submitting your work to others because you are scared of being rejected? Yes. <laughs> or uh, are you holding off because you are happy w- with the control and the community and the sort of model that you're working with and feel more confident growing that rather than jumping ship and trying something new? And that's where I am right now. Long answer. But I love it. I love it that you broke down the actual cognitive thought about why you have chosen to stay where you're at and do self-publishing. And I think too often, I've I've talked to a lot of authors and asked the same question to many authors, untraditional, hybrid. And I think it's different for everybody, but I've never had anybody come in and say, these are exactly the reasons why at the cost and and the balance. And I love that because I'm still totally on the fence what I'm going to do. There's months I'm like, I'm going for an agent. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to pitch. I can do this. And then there's other months where I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I want control. I want to know what I'm doing. I want all the money. Not that I'm going to make any money, but I want all of it. And some of that stems... Some of that stems from, I've been in the music industry with my husband. We had contracts, we had managers, we had all of it. So I've seen this on both sides of it. I've seen the handling. Mm. I actually was told to be quiet (laughs) in meetings because they were very concerned. They had to handle what I might say in the context of who we are, what we're doing. And I'll never forget that day. (laughs) Yeah, I'll never forget that. And I'm like, I don't want to be told that ever again. And I I don't live a life like that any longer. So I totally get that. So I appreciate you breaking it down like that, because I think that doesn't only help me, but it helps other listeners that are like, I don't know what I'm going to do either. I just hope that the one thing that one author told me that really sticks for me, and this is for me, is to not go the traditional route because you're afraid just to try it. And the good idea is that if it doesn't work out, you can still publish. And that's not a bad thing. That's not like the second best. That's another alternative route that you have that we never used to have decades ago. And so that is such a freeing space to be like, yeah, I can be in control of this decision. (laughs) One way, I I think it's important that we do need to be authentically us. I think that's going to make the biggest impact and and reach the readers the most. And I I think for me, it'd be too easy to let somebody come in and tell me what is going to work and what doesn't work. (laughs) And then I'll be like, and they don't know anyway. They don't know. And I'm like, that's (laughs) not me, guys. And then I would have this argument with them. <laughs> about it. Yeah. So yeah. let's jump into your readings. I'm dying to hear some of your story, some of your books. Before we get there, we have neglected to share the titles. So if you could share the titles for us and then take us into the setting of what you're going to read for us. And I'll go quiet during this time. The first book I published is called Memories Hostage. It's a historical mystery set in the 1880s UK. 
<laughs> the second book I published, this is going out in January. I'm going to run a promotion. I don't know when it is, but it'll be on my Patreon and it's going to involve this book. So Dulcie's Legacy is a young adult historical fantasy and it takes place in Nova Scotia. I'm also going to read a little bit of the first in the series. So the series is called Remnants. It starts with The Keening. And this is a book about crofting family in, in Scotland on the Isle of Mull. And they've been there for generations. And the 1820s come around and economic social changes cast them out to the winds, basically. They're uh, struggling to find their place in the world, whether they emigrate to a city, whether they emigrate out to a different country. We follow them for two more books. We've got The Grasping Root and Stormwreck and Spindrift, which is my latest. I tried to make them all different colors so that they're easy for people to tell apart. <laughs> and as I said, this is 1820s, starting in Scotland. It's a family that lives on a croft, which is a, a small farm, basically subsistence farming. And there's lots of backstory, but you don't get that because we're starting at the beginning. I'll just launch in. To the Caning, Chapter 1. It was bitterly cold before dawn, even on this late May morning. Neil rose from his bed of wool and straw and went out of the black house. As he splashed some water from the trough onto his face, he heard Sheila roust his sister, Myrna. She came out soon after, and they stood in the shadow of the croft house and ate their first meal of the day. Cakes of dried oatmeal from the day before and a chunk of their mother's cheese. It would last them until noon. They bundled up in layers of wool and thriftily patched linen, ready to be shed as the morning sun and the heat of work warmed their bodies. Neil, older by a year, led the way up the hill. The high, flat ground above their house looked westward to the Atlantic and the Carneberg Isles. The western horizon showed a dark blue above the slate gray sea. The deep pit was full of dried kelp stems, arranged carefully so that they would burn cleanly together. Neil could see that Myrna was worried by the way she kept glancing toward the large cover over the hole, imagining rocks that had fallen in or an empty pocket that would slow down the fire. Myrna had done most of the ferrying of the kelp from the cliffs below where it dried up to the rough kiln. There were weeks' worth of work tied up in this pit. The gathering, the laying out to dry, and the transporting of the kelp to the pit to be laid in layer by layer. And this every time there was a winter storm that threw up more of the weeds from the sea. It had been a cold winter, but not a meager one, since their family had the comforts of a salted side of pork and their walled vegetable garden, as well as the fishing not five minutes' walk from their home. The black house had stood for three generations, its two rooms and thatched roof welcoming many a neighbor and protecting the Maclean's from many an ill wind. And there seemed to be a lot of those in recent years. The high rents they had paid the year before, made possible the high price by the high price paid for the kelp ash, had stood them in good stead with the laird of Torlosk, and he al had allowed them free access to the turf-cutting beds for their winter supply of peat. Neil was hoping for some of that extra money to go for a tutor from up the island who could further his education. At 16, he was more than finished with the parish school's curriculum 
but they hadn't had enough money two years ago to send him out for more. Maybe this year, he thought. So that's our first couple pages. That sets the scene with Neil, the last year, the present year, his hopes for the future. I have to admit, I'm totally hooked. (laughs) 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 It's a beautiful place to be. I can imagine exactly where it is because I visited Mull and it's on a part of the island that I did not go to, but it's gorgeous. So I'm allowed to imagine a little bit further out. Yeah, it's like the home of ruined castles and everything. So it's very atmospheric. All right, so we skip forward to when Neil and his stepfather, Gillen, are on the road walking to Glasgow to try to find out if there are other options because they're, they can't pay their rent. So this is them on the road and in the countryside of Scotland. When the sun dipped past the horizon, Neil wondered when they could stop for supper and where. He'd only seen a few cottages in the last hour of walking and no smoke, a very strange sight. He wondered if anyone lived in them at all or whether they had all been evicted as well. Just as his stomach was beginning to rumble, a cottage came into view off the road, nestled up against a small rise in the land. Smoke wound out of a hole in the roof and Neil's spirits lifted. Perhaps there would be a chance for some stories, an exchange of news with the crofters. Could we not stop to ask for some supper here, father? It is still the highlands. He looked hopefully over at him. Aye, I was thinking the same thing. I shall go and knock. An answer came immediately, as apparently they had been sighted coming up along the road. A little woman opened the door to let them in. She was Mrs. Monroe a widow with four children all grown and left. She stayed here in case any came back, but would perhaps soon be leaving too. And what was their business? We are on our way to Glasgow to see my sister. She says they may have good work in a cotton mill there, and my family on Mull may have to be moving on, Gillen said, not sure whether he should broach the subject of evictions with their hostess. Oh, evicted as sure as not, don't you? Everybody's getting there sooner or later. It's just terrible. As if the lads had any better duty than protecting their people. Now the king and prince are gone. Mrs. Monroe, I do not say we disagree, but who is the laird in these parts? Has he been any kinder than the tales we hear of the Duke of Sutherland? MacDonald it is, and no kinder than any other. Some out in the aisles I heard were putting in improvements to let people stay, but if you're here and you're on your way to the city, then I suppose that puts paid to that illusion. Aye, perhaps. But I didn't see any people leaving on the ferry today from our island, the Lord be thank it. The three of them toasted to that, and Neil had his answer to Gillen's scrutiny on the boat. Mrs. Monroe poured water from a jug by the door into a pot over the fire and invited them to stay for tea. They accepted gladly. With their foremost worry out and done with, they could pass on to other news and stories. Neil told of his schoolmaster's habit of falling asleep at the end of classes because he was staying up late, a courting. Gillen told of his discovery of the perfect cast to catch the silver trout off Dunewald. And Mrs. Monroe told them of the time her husband had walked 49 miles clear over to Inverness to fetch her the flowers she wanted for her bridal bouquet. She still had the dried wreath in her wooden chest. Time flew by, 
and several bannocks and case had been con- cakes had been consumed before the men stood and said they should really be going, that they had many more miles to cover before sleep. The old widow smiled and blessed them, clasping each of their hands and waving them off before shutting her door. They set off on the road again. Neil glanced back to where the moon shone in the west over his island. He turned and walked on. That's beautiful. Margaret, you obviously spent some time in Scotland. <laughs> Mishmash. Yeah, I tried, yeah. but... No, it was wonderful. Beautiful. Oh, I'm excited. Okay, so that's on my reading list, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> that's the keening, and that's the start of the series. I had tried as best I could to make the series novel standalone, but... I got feedback on the last one that it's it starts very slow if you don't know the family from before. So I was like, okay, oh, gotcha. so we'll start with the Keening. You're a beautiful storyteller, absolutely beautiful reader too. That's something that not all authors can do is read their work well. So that's very good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, as you take us out of this podcast, let me ask you this one question. What is the best advice that you had been given as an author? from anybody. The closest I have to an answer is the quote about living a remarkable life, not even trying. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. If you're not taking a risk, why are you here? Like you have one chance and if you're not doing what you want, like why bother? That is the attitude that I've been trying to embrace, but it's, it comes up in conflict with how I was raised. And so like this risk averse behavior really needs to be coaxed forth out of that to be like, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. Like, yeah, I think that's better for finding community as well. I was looking at your, why do this podcast? I'm looking for literary community. I'm looking for people who are after the same things. And I feel like for a long time, I assumed that people were in the same space. And so didn't talk about values and goals and all that stuff. And when I got a broader range of the world and how it works, it was like, oh, I need to find the people who are in the same space. Once you do that, you can be much more honest with your audience. And I think that's the best advice I would pass on. That's brilliant. I love it. How do we find you? I know you have a website where, how do people find you? They'll be in my show notes, but it's also nice to share with everybody. Granted that we don't know what will be out when this comes out with COVID. What's the best way for my listeners to reach out to you? Sure. The three places that I'm the most active are Patreon, YouTube, and Twitter. So Patreon, Margaret underscore Pinard, and that's P-I-N-A-R-D, like Captain Picard. And YouTube, it's if you use bit.ly links, it's Booktube MP. But if you search Margaret Pinard on YouTube, I am the only one, believe it or not. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And then on Twitter, I am Taste Life Twice because that is my publishing company. So that's the only one that sort of uh, varies from the usual. Those are the places where I want to foster connection, get to know people, and spend the most time, lots of time. Awesome. And my listeners know that I will put all that in show notes. So listeners, here's your action item. I like to give it to you. Go on one of those three or all three and meet Margaret there and definitely let her know that you heard her on this podcast because that's so important for us. There's a lot of time we don't know who's listening to us. So definitely let her know. And also buy her books for crying out loud. They're great. I'm going to be getting them. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure you're going to see Margaret and myself doing some things together here in the future. (laughs) Yes. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. I totally appreciate it. And I look forward to doing something more creative with you in the future. Sounds perfect. Thanks so much, Vicki. 
for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off. Thank you.